Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Oh, hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And today, we are in the kitchen. Yes, we are in the kitchen with Sander Katz. He's done quite a lot of research and writing on fermentation. And he wrote a book a few years ago on wild fermentation, which details the wonderful health benefits of fermentation and gives you tons of recipes and ways to get started with it. He's also written a book on the food underground and food activism called The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. And he's got a new book coming out soon on live cultures, which is really awesome. And so, yeah, we're recording this episode from our kitchen where Seth is busy uh, working away on some kind of sauerkraut omelet. We interviewed Sander in the kitchen where I was whipping up a batch of some really tasty sauerkraut. I learned how to make it from watching Sandor, and it's very, very easy. We'll share some recipes with you as we go along. He has quite a few videos on YouTube of uh, his wonderful and easy to follow instructions so you can get started with fermenting yourself. And he's going to share some tips with us today throughout the interview. In addition, he talks about the history of fermentation and how humans have had relationships with biota for pretty much the entire lifetime of the species. So fermenting is important because a few days ago, there was a huge blackout in San Diego. And what happens in a blackout is your refrigerator will cut off and everything in it starts to spoil. And in a few days, if the blackout lasts, like say you're in a hurricane and there's a power outage for a long period of time, as a lot of people in the Northeast and on the East Coast have been facing over the last few days, everything starts to spoil. And that's because all of these live cultures are going in and trying to eat all of that food. And if you know how to harness them to your advantage, you can actually use these tips if you're facing any kind of natural disaster or potential power outage or any kind of dire scenario to make sure that you have vegetables and food and all sorts of things backed up and stored away and making sure that you will have the nutrition you need to survive any type of long-term power outage where you don't have refrigeration. That's very true, Justin. Not only do these foods keep well without refrigeration, but they are extremely tasty, as we found out. And healthy. Oh, and very healthy. So some of our episodes, we dive more into the philosophical underpinnings of the predicament of the world. This episode, we get to dive in on practical ways that you can start to drive a local food economy as well as actually create some tasty food for yourself. So uh, on that note, I'm going to get back to making my sauerkraut and enjoy the episode. Yeah, let's serve up a tasty interview. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Sandor Katz, author of Wild Fermentation and the Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. 
Sander, you teach food workshops across America, and you're an herbalist, activist, builder, craftsperson, bicyclist, and the writer of several books, including most recently, Wild Fermentation and The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. So is there anything else we can add to your bio other than that you and Seth Moser Katz might be related? <laughs> um, no, I think that, I, that, that, that that sounds adequate. Let me just plug my website. That if people want information about my my uh, my workshops or information about uh, about fermentation, um, check out my website, which is wildfermentation.com. So uh, let's just jump right in here, uh, Sandra. Can you tell us about what the American food underground is, and do you think the system really can be reformed from the grassroots level? Is it time to abandon our industrial food system in its entirety? Can it be changed from the grassroots level? I mean, I guess what I would say is that's the only way it possibly can be changed. I don't know whether it can be changed, but 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 certainly, you know, to the degree that we have any, you know, sort of hope or desire to uh, to to make it change, you know, it's going to happen at the grassroots level. I mean, the, the food industries are so concentrated and constitute so much um, economic and political power that I think that, you know, the only way to make change is by sort of, you know, creating grassroots food systems. You know, I, I, I don't think we can, you know, dismantle it from the top. The system of food production and uh, distribution that we have um, desperately demands subversion. And the place where that is happening is, uh, is at the grassroots level. And, you know, when you say, is it time to abandon our industrial food system in, it, in its entirety? Well, I mean, certainly... Certainly, there are, you know, many people and, um, you know, pockets of people in different places who have or have done their their best to. And then there are other people who, um, you know, are, are caught up in their very busy lives who have no choice but to rely upon the industrial food system. And uh, and maybe to the degree that they can, they are supplementing that with, um, you know, food they're growing in their backyards or uh, things that they buy at their local farmers markets or the CSA that they subscribe to. So, I mean, I think that there are you know, there are lots of people who are part of and, um, you know, supporting the grassroots movements um, to create change who, you know, also have one foot in the, um, you know, dominant food system. So, you know, it's not like it's not like the dominant food system is just going to sort of you know disappear all at once. It's you know it takes it takes time and energy to create alternatives to it. Right now we're not we're we're not producing enough food in the alternative food systems to uh, to feed everyone. But there are examples of places where institutions and localities are building uh, you know let's say local food procurement into the way they function, and that's part of you know how we can build alternative systems of food production distribution. So let's step back just for a moment and perhaps you could run us through some of the major problems with the industrial food system. I'm sure our listeners are familiar with a lot of them, but if you could just summarize a lot of them for us. Sure. I'm going to summarize it, you know, really, really succinctly, you know, and I would say that the, um, you know, the system of food mass production that has emerged over the last 60 years 
is rapidly destroying the earth that we live on. It is rapidly destroying uh, our health and it is eroding um, the underpinnings of economic security. So, I mean, I would say that the, um, you know, the experiment in food mass production has in many ways been a huge failure because the technologies that allow for food to be produced, uh, you know, on this vast scale, vast monocultures, chemical inputs, um, use of um, unfathomable water resources, water pollution, soil erosion, genetic drift, wasteful packaging, uh, the average food commodity traveling thousands of miles from where it's grown to, um, to where it's consumed. You know, each of these things is environmentally destructive. And the food that we are producing through this system is nutritionally diminished all of these you know epidemics of our time whether we're talking about you know obesity and diabetes whether we're talking about cancer allergies you know all of these things are related to the quality of the food that people eat so you know this system is producing nutritionally diminished food and right now for the first time in, in the US demographers are thinking the life expectancy of children uh, born now is likely to be shorter than the lifespans of their parents, uh, which is really a reversal of the traditional expectation. So, you know, for all these reasons, I mean, I think that, it, you know, it is just not sustainable to rely on a system of food mass production. And I think that a system like we have, you know, while, while certainly, you know, affluent people have more food choices than ever before, um, you know, that is coming at a huge, huge price. And we have a system that is very vulnerable to disruptions and um, and really not very resilient at all. And going off of, of those issues with the food system, just mainly the unsustainability of it, there's a lot of issues, as you brought up, about how it's uh, it's killing our health, it's killing our ecosystem. But I think the most prescient issue is that over the last few years, we've seen food prices spiking and wild weather patterns devastating some of the most productive farmland in Texas and Oklahoma. For example, they're experiencing a horrible drought right now. Some are even calling it the new Dust Bowl. And so do you see the industrial food system on the verge of breaking down? And if so, how can citizens prepare for shortages or breakdowns in the global food trade? The best thing that people can do to, to promote food security, to eat better, to promote local economic resilience and security is to get involved in local food systems. You know, break out of the confining and infantilizing role of consumer and become part of the re-emergent web of local food producers. And I don't mean quit your job and become a farmer. I mean, you know, find something that you can produce, whether that's in your backyard garden or whether that is buying some food products from local farmers at a, at a moment of abundance of the year and uh, using some form of preservation to make a bunch of it. And then you have, you know, a, a food product that you can trade with other people who are, uh, you know, doing different forms of, of, of preservation. And, uh, you know, I just think that, you know, sustainability is not 
not a spectator sport. It requires active participation and rebuilding local food systems requires our involvement. It requires you know, more people becoming farmers. It, it requires more people to dedicate themselves to buying food directly from local farmers and more people getting involved in activities like uh, fermentation and, uh, and, and, and food preservation. Everybody can find a way to plug in and, uh, and become some sort of a producer. It doesn't have to be at a commercial scale. I mean, really res resilient local economies involve more informal forms of exchange, you know, barter and things like that. You know, if you ferment some uh, sauerkraut or can some tomatoes, then then you've got something that you can, um, you know, trade with people who are doing, uh, you know, other forms of preservation. It seems that there's been a large uptick in the prevalence of gluten allergies and Crohn's disease in the world these days, and, you know, allergies to food in general. Is this a direct result of this industrialized food system? Children especially, that there's large amounts of allergies that they're developing at a very young age. Are these things related? Is there a correlation between the industrial food system and the allergies that people are, are developing? It seems likely because there have been, um, you know, such, you know, dramatic shifts in how people are eating. But there are there are a lot of, um, you know, different theories as to why this is happening. And I, I, I really am not, you know, well versed enough on them to, to, to really know what the uh, what, what the ultimate uh, cause of this is. I, I, I really I really don't know and can't say. But it seems like it would have to do with, um, you know, the huge changes in, 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 in what people eat and all of the, you know, sort of new, new chemicals, new genes, uh, new forms of processing um, that, are, that are transforming the food that we eat. So you were speaking briefly about how people can start in investing in their local food system by participating in it. And we're seeing a lot of turmoil in financial markets around the world, and there are huge piles of money looking to be invested. Do you think there's room for investing money in local food system if people are willing to take a, a lower return on their investment than a lot of these crazy hedge funds and things? Or do you think that even more importantly, people need to get out and actually start you know, growing cabbage in their backyard and fermenting it and making sauerkraut? I, I would say both, and I don't think that those things are mutually exclusive at all. But I mean, I think... I think people just going and 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 doing it is uh, is great, but I, I I mean I think that there's also lots and lots of room for enterprises that um, you know that make different kinds of foods. You know, for instance, cheese. I mean, you know, I've I've definitely experimented a lot with cheese making. I would uh, you know I'd encourage anybody who's interested in that to to try it out. But really, you know, ma making good cheese takes um, you know takes a lot of practice and a lot of uh, nuanced technique. And so you know, there's all these foods that people eat that are um, you know require transformation from the raw products of agriculture and. And, uh, you know, this doesn't have to happen in a, you know, a craft factory that's, um, you know, feeding millions of people. You know, it can happen in small farm-based enterprises, but there's still some, you know, capital involved in um, getting all the equipment that's that's required. So I think, yeah, we definitely need investment in our local food systems also. And I, I heard a talk by Woody Tash, who wrote a book called Slow Money and has um, started uh, a slow money movement. Movement, but, you know, that's precisely what they're talking about is getting, you know, people with, you know, capital looking for investment opportunities to 
think about altering their expectations and getting slightly uh, lower returns on their money in exchange for creating um, uh, social utility. So, you know, things like local food producers are exactly what they're encouraging people to invest their money in. You're insane, man. You've handed a loaded gun to children. Stop treating them like children and they'll stop behaving like children. Who the hell are you to play monitor? Explain the loaded gun to them. Bring it all out into the open. I've blown the last secret wide open. No more secrets from now on. No more telling the children what's best for them to know. Let them all grow up. It's about time. I've handed life and death back to the people who do the living and dying. The common man's been whipped and led along enough by driven men like us. Compulsive men. Tiger men who can't help lashing the world before them. But who the hell are we to make decisions for the world just because we're compulsive? Let the world make its own choice between life and death. Why should we be saddled with a responsibility? We're not saddled, Yang Yovel said quietly. We're driven. We're forced to seize the responsibility that the average man shirks. Then let him stop shirking it. Let him stop tossing his duty and guilt onto the shoulders of the first freak who comes along grabbing at it. Are we to be scapegoats for the world forever? Damn you! Taken enraged. Don't you realize that you can't trust people? They don't know enough for their own good. Then let them learn or die. We're all in this together. Let's live together or die together. Do you want to die in their ignorance? I believe in them. I was one of them before I turned tiger. They can all turn uncommon if they're kicked awake like I was. Foyle shook himself, 50 feet above the counter of Piccadilly Circus. He perched precariously and bawled, Listen to me, all you. Listen, man. Gonna sermonize me? Dig this, you. He was answered with a roar. You pigs, you. You goof like pigs is all. You've got the most in you and you use the least. You hear me, you? Got a million in you and spend pennies. Got a genius in you and think crazies. Got a heart in you and feel empties. All of you, every you, he was here. He continued with the hysterical passion of the possessed. Take a war to make you spend. Take a jam to make you think. Take a challenge to make you great. Rest of the time you sit around lazy, you. Pigs, you. All right, God damn you, I challenge you. Me, die or live and be great. Blow yourselves to Christ gone. Or come and find me, gully foil. And I make you men. I make you great. I give you the stars. This is The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Sander Katz. So in your book, you talk a lot about fermentation and your love for that fermentation. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into it? Was it love at first sight, or kind of like the kombucha organism, did it grow on you over time? 
yeah, sure. I mean, fermentation definitely grew over me, grew on me over time. I mean, as a as, as a kid, I loved sour pickles, uh, what you might know as kosher dills, and those are made without any vinegar added. They are simply made in a salt water brine with lots of garlic and dill. Um, acidity that preserves the pickles is lactic acid rather than acetic acid, which is what what, what vinegar pickles are. So I, I, you know, from a very young age, I was just drawn to this flavor of lactic acid fermentation. I was drawn to this flavor long before I had ever heard the word fermentation or knew what it meant or had experimented with it. So, you know, I'd say the first chapter of the story of my love for fermentation is just being, you know, drawn to this very distinctive uh, flavor as a child. Then, um, yeah, I did a lot of uh, dietary experimentation in my 20s, and I spent a couple of years following a macrobiotic diet. And through macrobiotics, I was first exposed to the idea that there are um, significant digestive and health benefits to eating foods with live cultures. And, uh, you know, I should just say here, live culture foods are a subset of fermented foods. They're fermented foods that have not been cooked after their fermentation so that live lactic acid bacteria remain intact. And those and those live bacteria actually turn out to be hugely uh, beneficial to many aspects of our of our health and, and, and well-being. So, but it was really through macrobiotics that I first was exposed to the idea that there's a there's a specific health benefit to these foods. But still I wasn't really making them myself. You know, what got me to start fermenting food myself was when I moved from New York City to a community in rural Tennessee in uh, 1993. I became part of tending a garden. And I was a little bit naive and it came as a little bit of a surprise to me that all of the cabbage would be ripe at once, uh, that all of the radishes would be ready at once. So when I delved into the actual practice of fermentation was when I had a, uh, you know, a practical need to figure out something to do with this um, fleeting abundance of vegetables. And so, you know, when life gives you a big plot of cabbages, you figure out how to make sauerkraut. So that's what I did is I just looked in books and, you know, learned the very simple technique for making sauerkraut. And, you know, sauerkraut has been a constant in my life since then. My friends started calling me Sandor Kraut. And that's what led me into to teaching about sauerkraut. And the first time I taught a sauerkraut making workshop was at an event called uh, Food for Life in the New Millennium that was held in 1999 at another community in Tennessee called uh, the Sequatchie Valley Institute. When I was teaching that workshop, what really struck me was that almost everybody had a fear that aging food outside of refrigeration could result in something that would accidentally kill them. So how would they know that they got the right bacteria and not the wrong bacteria growing? Uh, they didn't have a microscope. They didn't have the ability to identify the specific microorganisms. And it was almost as if uh, you know many people had the misimpression that you need to be a microbiologist or you need to have a sterile laboratory in order to do these things safely. And so, you know, it was really that experience that, 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 
you know, helped me come to this mission of uh, just demystifying fermentation for people, you know, helping people to reclaim this really important practice into their lives uh, rather than being um, afraid of it. I mean, every fermentation process really amounts to, you know, an ancient ritual that our, that our ancestors have been practicing for millennia. All fermented foods are prehistoric. We don't know the origins of any of the fermented foods because they all predate recorded history. And the earliest writings in you know, virtually every written tradition refer to ferments that already existed. These foods have been very culturally important. Many ferments have, have been used as religious icons. People have performed ritual around them. Uh, a lot of religious practices and spiritual practices have involved uh, products of fermentation. I think that it's just important to recognize how important they are. Just think about this idea that we use the word culture to talk about, you know, when we introduce the yogurt, the, the, the bacteria to make yogurt into milk, we call that culturing the milk. We call a little sample of the sourdough that you might want to share with somebody a sourdough culture. So we use the same word culture to describe these little communities of bacteria and fungi that we work with to create all of these foods that people love to eat and, um, and that are the, at the center of all of these culinary traditions. And then we use the same word to describe you know, music and language and literature and scientific knowledge and belief systems and the totality of all things that people seek to pass down from one generation to the next. So I, I think it's just important to recognize that as a group, you know, fermented foods, they're central. I mean, they are not culinary novelties. They're not cupcakes. They have been, you know, sort of part of the distinctive cultural practices that emerged in all parts of the world and that I would argue are necessary if people are going to move away from a hunter-gatherer lifestyles where you know each day is spent procuring the food resources to get you through that day, and you move to a system of agriculture where you invest your energy into crops that are going to be ready at a certain point of the year, that only makes sense if you have some insights into means to preserve those resources to feed you through the rest of the year. And certainly I'm not suggesting that the, uh, the only means or the most ancient means of preserving food is, uh, is fermentation, but fermentation is very uh, important and central among the uh, you know, historic means that people have used to preserve food. And, and like you were saying, we've been eating fermented foods, live culture foods as a species for a very long time. And they're so central to who we are as a species. And yet now we're so obsessed with sterility and hygiene and cleanliness. Like you were saying, when you were teaching that first uh, sauerkraut workshop, why do you think that is? Why do we have that obsession? Well, I think that the main reason that, that we're so obsessed with sterility and cleanliness, I mean, you know, hygiene is important. You know, people recognizing that washing your hands after you defecate, you know, that, that's, that's hugely important. I mean, I don't, I don't want to dismiss notions of hygiene. I think it's a really important practice to wash your hands before you begin working with food. Absolutely. This is not against 
best hygiene. Fermentation goes a lot better when you keep things clean. However, I would say that our obsession with sterility, which is very different from cleanliness, derives from the fact that the earliest triumphs of the field of microbiology, which is, you know, just barely 150 years old now, involved identifying pathogenic bacteria, bacteria that were the agents of the spread of various infectious diseases. You know, that that was hugely important insight to recognize that certain diseases were spread via bacteria. So really, uh, in the culture, we've developed what I call the war on bacteria and this idea that bacteria in general are dangerous and should be destroyed and our lives would somehow be better, you know, if we could kill all the bacteria and live in a sterile bubble. But the facts are different than that. And, um, you know, bacteria are the context for all life. You know, assuming that you believe in the theory of evolution, it is widely agreed that all other forms of life evolved from bacteria. And the corollary to this is that no other form of life has ever lived without bacteria. You know, every, uh, every amoeba, every plant, every fish, every animal, every human being is host to an elaborate indigenous microbiota of bacteria. And actually, the scientists who count the cells in our bodies came to a startling conclusion some years ago where they realized that, um, you know, the cells in each of our bodies that, you know, reflect our unique individual DNA, what you could call our bodily cells, are outnumbered 10 to 1 by the bacteria that we are host to. And 10 these to bacteria. 1. 10 to 1. And these bacteria are not just, they're not parasites. They are, um, they are symbionts. So they are, you know, they're getting something from their association with us, but they are giving us something also. I mean, they enable us to digest food we would not otherwise be able to digest. They enable us to assimilate nutrients. They synthesize certain essential uh, nutrients for us. And they, and they play a huge role just beginning to be, um, you know, recognized and the mechanisms of which are just beginning to be understood. But they play a huge role in what we call our immune function. Our immune function is some sort of a conversation between the cells that, um, you know, line the mucous membranes largely in our intestines and the bacteria that they are uh, interacting with. So bacteria just play huge roles in our life. You know, people who are studying the rise of obesity are coming to the conclusion that bacteria regulate the balance between um, energy use and energy storage in our bodies. So it may be the epidemic in obesity has something to do with a shift in the balance of bacterial populations in our intestines. The worldview that we just need to kill all bacteria and our lives would be better with bacteria is dead wrong. And we really have to stop thinking that way. We could not live without bacteria. We simply physiologically could not function. The way the evolutionary biologists think about it is the bacteria that that we coexist with perform all of these functions on our behalf that we have not had to evolve 
the ability to do on our own. So they really, you know, expand the range of what we can do and what nutrients we can digest. And, you know, in a big way, they enable us to exist and function on this earth because bacteria is the context for all of the life on this earth. And the reason why fermentation, you know, works and works in such predictable and reliable way is it's not only human beings that have evolved with and coexist with um, bacterial populations, but, you know, every plant uh, coexists with bacteria. Bacteria, you know, play a huge role in the life of the plant as well. And so when you when you cut a head of, of cabbage and shred it and salt it, it's pretty predictable what kinds of bacteria are going to develop in that salty cabbage environment. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Sandor Katz, author of Wild Fermentation and the Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. And so you hit on a lot of the health benefits for eating live culture foods just a moment ago, but what are some of the biggest reasons you see for people in our modern world to start eating live culture foods? Well, I would say that the, the, the most significant benefit of live culture foods are the bacteria themselves, lactic acid bacteria. It turns out that uh, you know human beings have a very intimate relationship with lactic acid bacteria. There actually are um, you know specific strains of lactic acid bacteria that are unique and indigenous to human bodies. Uh, most specifically, human vaginas have a variety of lactobacilli that create an acidic condition, which is what enables safe reproduction. So, you know, basically our human reproduction depends upon fermentation in our bodies. The flip side of this is that when babies are born and, uh, you know, travel out of the sterile womb for the first time, in the birth canal, among the very first bacteria that all, you know, babies born uh, through the birth canal are always lactic acid bacteria because they're, they are dominant there. You know, and then as the babies start breastfeeding, they get continual repeated exposure to lactic acid bacteria. And this is part of, you know, what has to develop uh, inside the baby before they're able to start uh, digesting uh, other kinds of foods. So, so anyway, lactic acid bacteria are very, very important to human beings. And, you know, historically in the scheme of things, I don't think anybody ever had to think twice about, um, you know, replenishing bacterial populations in their bodies. But, you 
you know, because of this war on bacteria that I alluded to earlier, there's all these factors in our daily lives that, uh, you know, constitute an assault on the bacteria in our bodies that we depend on. Chlorine in water, antibiotic drugs, antibacterial cleansing products, you know, all of these factors in our modern lives. And I certainly don't dispute that, um, you know, Antibiotic drugs can can save lives. I'm not dogmatically opposed to antibiotic drugs at all, but everyone seems to agree that across the population, they're wildly overprescribed, and even more so than in human beings, livestock are simply preemptively pumped up with um, antibiotic drugs because it makes them grow faster. And so there's there's just a residual of all this antibiotic use that's accumulating in the water table. So, you know, each of us are ingesting uh, low levels of antibiotics and lots of other pharmaceutical chemicals every single day. And this has, um, you know, certain effect in in our bodies. So I think for us in the 21st century, more than for people uh, in the past, uh, you know, really is important to maintain good health to, um, you know, consciously ingest live culture foods rich in lactic acid bacteria to get that from diverse sources of food. So you can, um, uh, you can build biodiversity inside your body. We're all familiar with this concept of biodiversity in, in larger ecosystems, but we all have, you know, we also contain ecosystems and we have to think about biodiversity inside of our bodies. There are some health benefits from fermented foods beyond the live cultures. And these could be, you know, benefits even in foods that don't contain live cultures. I mean, live culture foods are a subset of fermented foods that don't get heated after their uh, after their fermentation. But, you know, certain things like bread, bread always gets uh, gets cooked in a hot oven. So the live cultures always die in bread. And yet there there can be benefits to a to, to a fermentation, even in foods that get cooked. And just broadly speaking, the the other nutritional benefits of fermentation broadly are pre-digestion, breaking complex compound nutrients down into more elemental forms that are easier for us to digest and assimilate. I would say the the most vivid example of this would be uh, soybeans. You know, soybeans are considered to be the plant food with the most concentrated protein. But if you just cook soybeans and, and, and eat them, which, you know, nobody does. And the reason nobody does is because it just gives you horrible indigestion. Um, it just makes you feel gassy and uncomfortable. And there's no way that our human digestive systems can extract that protein out of the soybeans. And so the, the, the Asian cultures that pioneered soy agriculture – developed all of these varied means of fermenting them. So, you know, there's soy sauce, there's miso, there's tempeh, there's natto. These foods are very different from one another in flavor, texture, form. But what they have in common is that the protein gets broken down into amino acids, which are much easier for our bodies to assimilate. So pre-digestion. Then there's uh, nutrient augmentation, which is the fermentation actually contributes certain nutrients, most notably B vitamins. And then in different ferments, there are unique micronutrients that are just beginning to be um, identified and named. Uh, One interesting one from a Japanese soy ferment called natto is called natto kinase. And, um, you know, it's not found in the soybeans. It is found in the coating of the beans after the fermentation by this bacteria, Bacillus natto. 
But this compound is useful for preventing uh, certain kinds of blood clotting disorders like aneurysms and also for basically removing plaque in blood vessels. So, uh, you know, it's mostly as a supplement that people are seeking it out. But, you know, right now, every supplement store uh, in North America has natokinase because uh, because it's been proven to be a very useful compound in uh, for people with certain with certain problems. So that's nutrient um, augmentation. Detoxification is another important uh, transformation to food that can be accomplished by fermentation. But 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 really, I would say that the most profound benefit are the live cultures themselves. So you've mentioned before, and as as we talked about fermentation, people have used it throughout the ages to help conserve food. It's been a part of many religious ceremonies and uh, practices and and many other human activities. Um, So in our recent times, refrigeration and preservatives have, have become very prevalent and as well as the prevalence of cheap oil to transport food all across the world. Would you like to see a move back towards fermenting Maybe what would your ideal food system look like in our currently hugely populated world? Oh, well, I mean, I certainly don't think it has to be fermentation or refrigeration. I mean, I think that, you know, it's entirely possible to sort of use different means of preservation together. I mean, what the refrigerator amounts to is a fermentation slowing device. You know, that can be very useful when you're fermenting things. You know, I mean, fermentation certainly is a wonderful strategy, you know, for people who don't have refrigerators, but, you know, it's not like fermentation only makes sense if you get rid of your refrigerator. So, you know, first, I just want to say that. As far as what would my, I I mean, I, I just feel like trying to sort of like grapple with the whole world as a food system is just it's just too big and so i mean i just i can't do it and i don't think that it's desirable to do it that way i mean i think that you know we have to look at reinventing local food systems and that's going to look a lot different you know in places with different climates and it's not that i'm opposed to to trade i mean you know foreign trade is 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 great but i mean you know we just have to you know, it takes huge resources to move things around the globe. And so, you know, when we, you know, go to, you know, a big supermarket and buy some food, okay, let, let's take an example of like, you know, buy some um, some fish that actually was fished, you know, within 500 miles of where we live, but then got sent to China to get the bones taken out by cheaper labor and then, you know, sent back to the U.S., so whatever, you know, cheap price you're paying at the supermarket, only a tiny portion of that is going to the, the people who fished. You know, most of it is just going to this huge infrastructure of, um, you know, boats and fuel and, you know, the people who own the companies and the insurers and the marketers and, 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 and all of that. And like the biggest thing that we need to do is develop local food systems. And, um, you know, I, I just I don't have a global prescription. What I can say about you know, sort of like global issues and the idea of, you know, the the challenges of feeding, you know, billions and billions of, uh, of, of, of mouths is I think that, you know, particularly from the biotechnology industries, um, there's a lot of, you know, propaganda suggesting that, 
you know, in the name of these billions and billions of people, in the name of, um, you know, being able to feed everyone, we need intensifying biotechnology. You know, we, we, we need, you know, more, better chemicals. We need, you know, more, better genetic engineering. You know, I just think that that is a total lie. Most of the, you know, intensifying biotechnology has maximized the amount of food that one person's labor can produce rather than maximizing the food that one acre of land can produce. And I think it's really important to distinguish between these things. You know, study after study has demonstrated that, you know, ultimately you can always get more food out of an acre of land if you have polycultures, many different things growing together on the same land rather than the monoculture model. The monoculture model definitely enables one person's labor to produce more food than that same acre with a polyculture, which would require much more intensive cultivation in terms of, you know, people hours and, uh, and labor inputs. But, you know, if you think about what is really the limited resource in feeding billions and billions of people, it's land, not labor. I mean, actually, it would be better if more people were engaged in agricultural production. So on the one hand, you know, let's just looking at the United States and the statistics that I know in, in, in the U.S., you know, right now, you know, somewhere between one and two percent of the population is involved directly in agricultural production. And typically this is held up as as evidence of economic triumph, that only one person in a hundred needs to be involved in producing food for the other 99 people. But, you know, thinking about our current economic context, that's not a benefit at all. I mean, everyone would be better off if, you know, if five people or 10 people out of a hundred were employed in agricultural production and probably using more labor intensive methods and polycultures, they could actually be producing more food. So I just don't buy, buy in at all to this sort of, you know, myth of overall food scarcity. Biotechnology is going to save the day and enable everyone to be, uh, to be well fed. That is merely a, um, you know, sort of rationalization of, uh, you know, of that root of um, agricultural production. And I think what we really need to do is, you know, in certain ways, devolve our, ag our agriculture. And I'm not saying everybody needs to be, um, you know, engaged in full-time agricultural production. But I think that, you know, a system where instead of one in 100 people, it was one in 20 or one in 10 people, uh, we'd have a lot better quality food and a much healthier economy. So it's essentially just arising from our limited definition of efficiency, the need for or the proposed need for biotech and genetically modified organisms. How can fermenting help us resist cultural homogenization? And would you say that there's a subversive nature to fermenting? Yeah, sure. I mean, I would say it's not just fermenting. I mean, you know, cultivation, getting involved in growing things, supporting local agriculture rather than, you know, globalized food commodities, as well as fermenting food are, are all ways of resisting cultural homogenization. And one of the things that's specific about fermenting foods 
in your home environment and particularly fermenting locally grown foods in your home environment is you get very particular local populations of bacteria growing in these foods. And so in a very literal and tangible way, when you eat foods that you have, you know, fermented with local foods in your home environment, you are becoming your environment. You are ingesting the bacterial populations that you are sharing your space on the earth with. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's the ultimate in local food to eat foods that are populated by local bacteria, and it is you know the the total opposite of homogenization. If you know if if what you find um, you know lining the the shelves of supermarkets are you know exactly the same over you know this vast territory of thousands of miles, that's what I mean by cultural homogenization. And the opposite of that is, you know, people figuring out what grows well and with the least work and other inputs where they live, growing a lot of that and then, you know, figuring out how to use those things to fill their to fill their needs. The word culture derives from the word cultivation you know, the origins of culture and also of the distinctness in cultures around the world has a lot to do with the the local conditions and what you can grow. And, you know, that's that dictates what kind of culture can emerge in different parts of the world. And, you know, rather than all, you know, sh sharing one homogenized culture, I think just everything is much richer and makes more sense to have locally distinct cultures. Why do you think we have the U.S. government cracking down so relentlessly on alternative food providers, such as the Rossum food raids in Los Angeles recently? And the numerous raw food and raw milk raids across the country. Why do we see that? Oh, I wish I, I wish I knew why. You know, there's it, it it's it gets back to the same dogma of um, you know bacteria are our enemies and we have to kill them. Certainly, the way that you know most of the milk in the United States is produced with cows that rarely, if ever, see pasture, and and therefore you know cows that are not on pasture cannot be healthy. I mean, cows are ruminant animals that you know evolved as grass eaters, and you know when you take an animal that is evolved eating a particular kind of food off of that food and feed it something different, their health, their microbial ecology um, changes. You know, in the context of the milk that's available in the U.S. food system, I mean, I think, you know, pasteurization is a very reasonable uh, safety protocol and uh, salvaging protocol. However, you know, milk is not intrinsically an unhealthy food and milk from healthy animals is really wonderful to drink raw. And it's interesting when pasteurization was uh, first being applied to milk and some states began requiring it uh, early in the 20th century, the organized group that was opposed to mandatory pasteurization was medical doctors who, who wanted to sort of develop uh, farm certification schemes. And in some parts of the country, farm certification was developed. And so, you know, in, in many states, including California, raw milk can be legally produced. And, uh, you know, in the state, um, you know, does a certain amount of inspection and, and certification of that. But in line with the sort of concentration of ownership and control of all the food resources, the milk bulk processors are a huge 
economic interest. They're, and they're much bigger than the kind of motley ragtag small dairy farms that are providing raw milk, you know, directly to people through, you know, buying clubs and herd shares and, uh, and structures like that. There are large economic interests who are, you know, opposed to the raw milk movement. And I think that there's also this dogma among people in public health that raw milk is somehow intrinsically dangerous. And so I think that, the, you know, the confluence of these, of this economic interest and this dogma is creating these ridiculous enforcement actions in cases where, you know, nobody's getting sick. What would be some of the biggest advantages of drinking raw milk? It tastes better. It's easier to digest. Those are probably the the two biggest advantages for certainly for the farmer. I mean, the people who have plugged into direct marketing of their milk to people who are interested in high quality milk compared to the people who are being squeezed to, you know, sell milk for a very low price to bulk processors who pasteurize it and package it for uh, for supermarkets. I mean, I would say economically for a farmer, it makes more, much more sense to produce, you know, less milk from uh, healthier cows with good access to pasture than to produce larger amounts of milk using, you know, recombinant bovine growth hormone, feeding them primarily grain and all these other practices that, um, you know, are not particularly healthy for the animals and tend to yield milk that would not be safe to drink without pasteurization. So, I mean, I think for the farmers, it's certainly better to, to, to direct market a high quality product than to, you know, make as much as you possibly can of a, of a low quality product. And so kind of switching gears a bit, but keeping the same kind of economic theme, I do quite a bit of home brewing myself. You know, I really enjoy it. It's a great pastime and it's always fun to go and meet up with friends and say, hey, here's a beer that I made. And, you know, we can all kind of come into it knowing that, hey, here's something that I made and it's, you know, handcrafted and all of that. I definitely have some motivation for why I homebrew. But I was wondering if you had any insights as to why we should homebrew when we could just go and purchase beer that would be cheaper. Is homebrew generally healthier than the heavily filtered beers that are generally available? Sure. I mean, let me say that, the, you know, the beers that are commercially available, you, it's hard to generalize about them because, you know, there there are lots of really great commercial brewing going on right now right. in North America. I mean, there's been, you know, this incredible revival of, um, you know, sort of regional craft brewing that, that's really amazing. And part of the problem with, um, with alcoholic beverages as, you know, as food commodities is that they're not subjected to the same labeling that all other food commodities are, are, are subjected to. So if you want to buy potato chips, you can go to the store and read the labels and get a sense of, you know, who's using just the basic, you know, ingredients that you need and who's adding a lot of extraneous chemicals. And so you could make an informed choice and buy a better quality version versus a worse quality version, except that with beers, that information is not on the label. So, you know, many of the beers, you know, have all sorts of chemicals in them. 
and they, and you have no way of knowing, uh, you know, which ones do and which ones don't. And I think, you know, that's a great health benefit of um, doing anything yourself is you know exactly what is in it. You know, and then, you know, there's a, there's a, a, to a certain degree, you know, anything that you ferment at home, you know, incorporates some of the, you know, local flora of your home. But, you know, really in, in beer brewing, for the most part, people are trying to minimize the, uh, you know, sort of extraneous environmental organisms and really just get the, you know, the yeast that they're introducing to, uh, to, to ferment everything. You know, I, I would say that, um, you know, the, the number one reason to brew beer yourself is because you want to have fuller relationship with the beverage that you're drinking. And I think that, you know, oftentimes we, you know, we kind of ignore this idea of, of relationship to, to our food and our drink. And this is a big part of the problem. Like, are these just, you know, products that, you know, just have, you know, nutrients and, and alcohol? Or are these foods that connect us to grains and to land and to yeast and to bacteria and to herbs? Because that's what beers emerged into culture as, you know, they were part of plant medicine. So, you know, the people who were, you know, the foragers, part of their practice was creating brews that could, um, you know, serve as mechanisms uh, for delivery and preservation of, of the plant medicine. And so, you know, I think that the art of brewing really is an outgrowth of the art of, um, you know, foraging and, and cultivation. And I think that really the, the biggest benefit to exploring the realm of homebrewing is rediscovering this web of relationships and the broader context of our foods and our beverages. So, you know, you might discover that you have a great gift for brewing and that you can make brews that you like better than what you can buy. It may well be that you don't or that that takes you years to develop. But, you know, I think that more important benefit that people can derive, you know, right away from their earliest experimentation is this, you know, tangible connection, you know, that really makes you much more intimate with this, with this beverage and with all the things that go into it. Eventually flung themselves and their machines into interplanetary space. These beings with soaring imagination eventually flung themselves and their machines into interplanetary space. I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Oh yeah, let's take a trip. Just sit back and light a split with this and don't slip on a funky dope track. Jump back, strap with a fat boot sack in a 7-8 black. Don't clean, gangster lean, I got green. But I served up like it ain't no thing. I hang with You're cooking with the extra environmentalists. And as you know, sauerkraut is fresh cabbage that has been fermented by 
having by cutting it up very fine and then putting it down in salt with a weight on it and then it begins to ferment and after the fermentation has stopped the cabbage is ready to eat and this is an age-old way of preserving cabbage that has been done for centuries. So, um, so what I usually do is I quarter the cabbages and then I cut the core out of each quarter, use the knife, using my finger as a guide to shred it kind of finely. But really it doesn't matter. I, I always tell people who are helping me, chopper's choice. So usually when I work with carrots and other root vegetables, I like to grate them. There's no reason you couldn't chop them if you'd rather do that. Uh, we're just, we're creating surface area. If it's, uh, if it's fine or if it's coarse, it doesn't really matter. As I chop the vegetables, uh, I lightly sprinkle salt. The key is sprinkling the salt lightly um, because at the end, we'll mix it all together and taste it and let taste be our guide. This is The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Sandra Katz. For our, some of our listeners at home who might be on their way home, you know, listening in the car to their kitchen, or for our listeners who, who are in the kitchen right now, or maybe even the listeners you could inspire to go to their kitchens right now, uh, do you have any simple recipes so that, that people listening to the podcast could uh, use to start fermenting for themselves right now? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the, the easiest place to start is fermenting vegetables. You know, I'm just going to I'm going to say sauerkraut as a shorthand, but you know, the, the the techniques for fermenting vegetables can be applied to any kind of vegetables you like or, you know, mixed vegetables. You know, all, all you need, you can do it in a jar. You you know, it's 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 wonderful to do it in a big crock or a barrel, but don't feel like you need to run out and buy something special. You have a jar somewhere in your house. The wider the mouth of the jar, the better, like a wide mouth canning jar works out really well, but work with what you have. Quart or liter jar will take about, you know, two pounds a kilogram of vegetables, you know, just to give you a sense of, of scale. Shred up your vegetables, you know, chop them, grate them, you know, put them into your food processor, however it is you like to do it. I mostly just like to use a knife myself. You want to create surface area on the vegetables. Then salt them. You don't need to measure or weigh the salt. Just salt them lightly. Salt to taste like any other, you know, informal recipe. And then squeeze them in your, in, with your hands. Squeeze the salted vegetables. You can introduce other, any other kinds of spices that you like. Some traditional ones are caraway seeds, dill, garlic, juniper berries. You know, you can, you can, um, experiment and add any other kinds of seasonings that you like, but squeezing the vegetables. What you're trying to do is get the vegetables submerged under their own juices. And so squeezing the salted vegetables kind of bruises them and breaks down cell walls and basically gets the cells to give up their juices so that the vegetables can be uh, um, uh, submerged under them. So, you know, once you can pick up a, a handful of vegetables and squeeze it and it's like a sponge, some water comes out, then just stuff them into the jar. Try to fill up the jar. You leave a little bit of space at the top. If you leave too much space, then, then you open up the possibility to surface molding, which is not the end of the world. But if you get surface molds, you want to skim them off as soon as you notice them. 
and then just ferment that. You know, in a, you can seal the jar, but if you seal the jar tightly, pressure will build. So you know, every day or so, especially at the beginning, just release the jar, release the top for a second, just just to relieve the pressure in there. And then you know, taste it after two or three days, but just taste a little. Taste it two or three days later, and you will observe that as time passes, the flavors will get more intense. The flavors will meld more. The textures will will shift over time. You know, I've had fermented vegetables that were two days old, two weeks old, two months old, two years old, you know, depending on the the temperature range that you're in and how, how you store them. Uh, this is a very versatile process that can lend itself to a lot of different um, uh, endpoints. But really, if you're just getting familiar with the process, um, just taste it periodically and start to familiarize yourself with a spectrum of flavors. On my website, wildfermentation.com, I have recipes for sauerkraut and sour pickles and a number of other kimchi and a number of uh, basic uh, vegetable ferments. In my book, Wild Fermentation, uh, I have many more, but you really don't need recipes. I mean, that is the basic technique, and beyond there, it's just all variations of the basic technique. And I think that, that vegetables are just the most straightforward way for anyone to start a practice in fermentation. There is no danger. It is widely agreed that fermented vegetables are safer than raw vegetables. So there's just really no need to um, be concerned about safety at all. The worst thing that you will encounter are surface molds, and all you need to do is scrape them away, and the and the vegetables that are underneath that will still be fine to eat. I was just going to say you're making me hungry. Yeah, I'm getting hungry too. Uh, so after you shred them up, you're saying you squeeze them with the with the salt. You put the salt in there and squeeze them, and you put them in the jar. Do you add vinegar? Did you did you say that part? Or you add no, some kind don't of add vinegar. You never add vinegar to sauerkraut. No, oh, really? So it's just, you just put it into the jar yeah. and seal it out? With- sauerkraut comes from lactic acid produced by lactic acid bacteria fermenting the vegetables. You never so add they just they just sit in their own juices and they ferment. That's it. That's really cool. Very cool. Just one last question from one of our listeners, Hans. He asked if if we could get your uh, description of the process by which foods like tofu and kimchi increase in nutrition and digestibility and preservation through fermentation. You mentioned it a little bit briefly earlier, but just to kind of address that. Okay, so first of all, the first example that you mentioned is not fermented tofu. Okay. I mean, vegetables are very digestible. So I'm not sure that I could say that, you know, sauerkraut increases the nutrition of or the or even the nutritional accessibility of uh, of a cabbage. What it does do is it preserves the vitamin C pretty well. So, you know, like historically, this has been a huge problem. Vitamin C in the wintertime. You know, let's say for for sailors on ships, uh, you know, in some of the you know early um, global explorations, you know, they would have ninety percent of the of the crew die of scurvy, vitamin C deficiency, and that was just the way it was. And then Captain Cook, Captain James Cook, who was an English explorer of the Pacific Ocean, was credited with conquering scurvy by taking. Um, 
barrels of sauerkraut and getting his crew to eat sauerkraut every day on his, you know, his longest journey in the Pacific was over two years and not a single member of the crew died of, uh, died of scurvy. So, so sauerkraut is very effective at preserving nutrients, but it's certainly not creating more vitamin C than was in the uh, cabbage to begin with. It's, you know, it's just, you know, it's just a very effective means of, of preserving it. I mean, I would say with the vegetable ferments like sauerkraut, really the, the most profound nutritional benefit uh, you know, is the live cultures themselves more than any, um, you know, augmentation of the nutrients that are in the vegetables in the first place. So thanks so much for your time with us today. Is there any closing thoughts you want to leave us with? Or if you want to plug any projects you're working on or, or let our listeners know how they can learn more about fermentation through any materials you have available, this this is the time to do it. Okay, sure. I mean, you know, well, I have my, my book, Wild Fermentation, has been out. I've, I'm just wrapping up um, another book about fermentation, tentatively to be titled uh, Fermentation Culture, that is due out next spring. And on my website, wildfermentation.com, you know, I not only have a bunch of recipes posted, but I have, you know, links to fermentation-related resources uh, all over the internet. There's a lot of information um, out there. So if you're all interested in exploring the realm of fermentation, I would just really encourage people to check out my website. I teach workshops that are listed on my website also, and then I also list workshops that other people teach. There's a huge hunger for information and guidance about fermentation. You know, even if most people are not doing it in their homes, everybody loves fermented foods. By some accounts, as much as one third of all of the food that human beings eat is fermented before we eat it. So, you know, all people from all culinary traditions eat fermented foods every day. You know, if you had any bread today, if you had any cheese today, if you had any coffee today, if you had any salami today, you know, those are just a few examples of, um, you know, foods that are, that are um, routinely fermented. Um, so, you know, so they're in our diets, even if we're scared of doing it. So, you know, so just let go of the fear. And if you're at all interested, you know, empower yourself, uh, you know, do a little bit of reading, watch some, watch some videos, you know, you'll be well on your way to uh, a fermentation practice in your own kitchen. Very cool. And from what you've been saying today, all it takes is just that initial motivation, getting up out of your chair and digging in and getting your hands uh, maybe a little bit covered in vegetable juice. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to go make some sauerkraut right now. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Sander, and really appreciate it. And maybe uh, when your new book is out, we can schedule another time to talk about it. Sounds great. No sunshine when she's gone. And that wraps up our conversation with Sander Katz about live cultures, fermentation, all sorts of wonderful food economies and adaptations to making sure that you have these wonderful live cultures in your diet. So what do you think, Seth? Oh, oh yeah, oh, this, this sauerkraut's really tasty. Sander Katz had some really interesting things to say. I really liked his points about, uh, for the first time, children being born today have actually shorter life expectancies 
than their parents due to their nutrition levels and the things that they're eating these days. It's pretty wild that food has such a huge impact on life expectancy and health and drives so much of you know our economy and so much a part of what it is to be human. I mean, humans have been eating for so long that it's almost part of our culture now. Is it any coincidence that we were talking about cultures and a lot of the themes of our show have to do with culture? I think that food is something that is absolutely indistinguishable from culture itself. And you really see that in the way that people choose to eat. And there's always a lot of discussion in the United States about our obesity epidemic. I saw a few months ago that now there's only one state, and that's Colorado, that has less than 20% obesity rate. So that's one in five people. So Colorado has like 19.8% obese. They're under the one in five mark. Well, it's important to remember that when life gives you a big patch of cabbage and it's starting to go sour, it's best to make a large jar of sauerkraut. That and also that the human vagina has lactobacilli, which creates an acidic environment, which is safe for reproduction. We all started in a place where bacteria was not only present, but prevalent. It's important to remember that, Justin. Yeah, what do you think everywhere you walk around, there's dispensers for hand sanitizer? Do you think that helps or hurts? I would say that bacteria definitely outnumber us on the planet. There's more bacteria cells in the body than actual bodily cells. So when you go around killing those bacteria that are very much a part of who you are, I mean, they outnumber our bodily cells 10 to 1. When you go around killing a big chunk of what makes you you, it's kind of counterproductive to life, wouldn't you say? If you take your ecosystem, your bacterial ecosystem inside your gut, inside your body, and you just strip it clean, that leaves a perfect place for all of these harmful bacteria to plant themselves down and cause a big problem. And so, like we were talking about with Sandra, it really is scary to think about all the antibiotics that we're using on our animals and all the extreme levels we've taken cleanliness to in our society because it really opens us up to all sorts of superbugs and bacteria. And uh, fortunately, we've been able to avoid something like bird flu becoming a massive epidemic but the more we strip away all of the positive bacteria in our life the more we open ourselves up to the possibility of a very dire superbug in the near future and already in countries in the south of africa you see things like extreme drug resistant tuberculosis and that's really scary because it's so contagious one person can have it on the back of a plane and cross the atlantic and by the end of that flight people will already be manifesting symptoms of extreme drug resistant tuberculosis and it's almost impossible to kill it out and the only reason I heard about that was because I went to a Vancouver Mycological Society meeting here in Vancouver and we were talking about ways to use fungi to actually create some of the new antibiotics that can attack this extreme drug-resistant tuberculosis so using these natural compounds that are in the fungi we can actually attack some of these incredibly resistant bacteria and viruses that are out there in the world. I thought it was also very interesting when he pointed out that when you actually eat local fermentation foods from your environment, you're becoming part of your environment because you're ingesting bacteria populations that are sharing the space on earth with you and they're becoming part of you. So they grow in your environment and when you eat them, they become part of you. In essence, you're becoming 
your environment. Yeah, and even sourdough, for example, another fermented food that Sander has a recipe for in his book, sourdough tastes completely different no matter where you're producing it. There's so much in the air that's different. There's so many different qualities in water. There's so many different qualities in your local environment that it produces a different flavor. You can get an idea for how pretentious a nearby grocery store is because they have $25 a loaf of sourdough that they fly in every day from Paris, France, because you can't mimic the taste of sourdough from Paris because the air somewhere else doesn't taste that same way. I think it's crazy that that much fossil fuel goes into shipping a loaf of sourdough all the way from France to the west coast of Canada every day, but it goes to show you the value that is added by fermented foods, and it also shows you the ability for a local environment to produce that custom flavor, that specific flavor that people want to have. If you notice when you go to other places, even other cities, the food tastes differently, and that's a large part because of the, of those local cultures and that you know the local flavor of the water, the, the air, all those things play a large part in how the food tastes. And cuisine definitely reflects those local biotas. And we've had conversations with a lot of our guests about economics and local economics, and some of them is, have mentioned food economies, but there's nothing more local than the food economy. And it really does have to start with food in localizing an area and localizing economies, because if there's anything that is most susceptible to the issues of peak oil and climate, it is food security. As we're seeing around the world, people are rising up because they can't afford food in North Africa. And then that's causing ripple effects all around the world that are causing other people to rise up and face their economic situation. And as our brittle system of food distribution and production becomes more and more threatened through all of the floods and droughts and the Dust Bowl in Texas and Oklahoma, it's only going to increase the price even more of the common food items and it's going to cause a really dramatic issue. I think you sent me the other day, Seth, this paper that came out by a lot of complexity theorists and they mm -hmm. were saying that if quantitative easing continues, that by August 2013, there would be dramatic riots all around the world that were related to food because of the role that all of this money that was being pumped into the global economic system was having on raising food prices. But you think of that pressure of quantitative easing on one side, and then there's the pressure of environmental issues with flooding and fires and climate instability. And it looks like it's a really serious time for our global food system and the way we've thought about food for the last few decades. The more you can do for producing your own local ferments, your own local vegetables, even if it's just a little bit, can go to make a huge difference. It's pretty frightening to think about what large cities would be like when food prices skyrocket, when the price of oil forces importation uh, price of food to just be astronomical. Will people go to their local supermarkets and trade in their automobile for a loaf of bread? Do you think people will be selling their, their children to slavery for dinner? The large diaspora that will inevitably have to happen will definitely cause people to start growing their own food and demand a local economy because if you don't have it, you don't have anything to eat. No one lives. So either you will, A, start paying exorbitant amounts of money for food that comes from far away, or you just start growing your own food, going into the countryside, raiding other people's farms, stealing from the farmers, and growing your own food wherever you can. So we have some reader mail to go through. Let me get it. Let me get it. 
let's uh, take a look at our mailbag. We got a, a message from Arjun. He's in the Netherlands. He told us that he has started listening to our podcasts in reverse order after he's listened to the last few. And he says it's the best podcast he's run into in a long time. And we have just enough surrealistic and dry humor to make thinking about the possible end of society something that we can laugh at. So uh, I'm glad that we can turn the end of society into something humorous. So we had a, a message from Liam who he, he gave us some answers to some of our soul searching questions that we had in our previous episodes about how to avoid cynicism and about social change. He says that I'm sure the minority of converts that listen to our show enjoy our philosophizing as much as we enjoy doing it. However, that people that need to hear what we say aren't the ones that are listening. In fact, it might as well be in Martian because it's very hard to compel people to act. Got to keep the hope up and got to keep the hope alive as best we can. Yeah, it's not just that. And I agree with his point that there's no real incentive for people to change their behavior because it involves giving up power and privilege. When you look at a lot of the movements that have risen up in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Spain, and you see the way that people have directly participated in organizing their new society, it's not always turned out in a great way. It's not to say that these people are creating utopias, but they're actually participating in creating their society. And when you see 250,000 people walking through the streets of Barcelona or people starting to command public space to make a point, and for example, in Egypt, during all the occupation of Tahrir Square, there were people who would actually organize daycares and cafeterias on the spot in the action. Uh, one of the original meanings of democracy actually meant rule by the poor. It's these people who are the unprivileged people in society who are actually realizing their creative potential in creating a new society and they're reaching out and doing it. And so, yes, it is easy to remain cynical by looking at everything that's going wrong in the world and seeing how little changes despite how much is changing. But at the same time, when there are mass movements forming in countries around the world and people are starting to create these societies, it's a lot harder to become completely cynical. And That's true. I th but I do think it's important to realize that you don't need 100% of the population behind you to actually have these large movements take place. You know, we, you don't need every single person listening to the show and saying, I agree 100% with these ideas. You need a small section. You don't even need that many. Just a few people well-placed within society who have a voice and who have uh, a pressure point on society to exert that that pressure. Before you know it, things can change very quickly. People placed high in media, throughout the government, throughout law enforcement, throughout the judicial system. People strategically placed can have a, a very large effect on society as we know it, a, a politician that comes to power who has the ideals and the and the heart to push through changes that can, you know, change society. It's, it doesn't have to be a hundred percent of everybody pushing for these changes to actually make things work. Yeah, exactly. Imagine if a local politician gets elected who is in line with all of the transition town local economies ideas and gets a city council and a mayor who are all in line with this. Imagine how much change could happen. You know, they could really start battling federal monetary policies and creating their own intentional city and implementing some of these ideas from around the world to create uh, livable spaces in a very short time. 
if they rallied everyone uh, to uh, participate. And as the power structure that is currently in place falls away and loses its reality, as more and more people become unemployed, they're going to look for solutions. Well, historically, there have been a lot of dictators who have risen to power on false illusions, and that's quite possible this time around. There's definitely a lot of solutions out there, like the ones we're covering on our show and a lot of intelligent people, uh, like the ones that we're speaking to who have ideas and have solutions. By having that background, that network of those people, then we have this resource to draw upon if there is someone who can get into a position of power or who is willing to take to the, the streets and start organizing society as everything is breaking down around us. The only real way to have large scale changes through the grassroots. Yeah. And, you know, this is a great way to organize those grassroots. Free yeah. media, pushing out the word, getting it out there. And, and you don't know how it's all going to shake down. And that all we can do is try to push things in positive direction and hopefully influence a few people along the way. But we definitely agree with your point that there's no incentive for a large amount of society to change. And uh, it's, it's going to be a difficult road as more and more people run up against that reality of a decaying ecology that's starting to pull down an economic system that was already built on a lot of fallacies. So we also had an, an email from Stephanie, who's out on the West Coast of, uh, of North America. And she said that she's listened to a number of our podcasts and she's found them to be absolutely fascinating. And she really enjoys the interviews and uh, the conversations between you and I, Seth. And uh, she mentioned that some of the music in the background was taking away from the ideas that were being presented. And uh, so that was a really good point, Stephanie. We'll definitely be more conscious about the volume of the music in our podcast and we'll dial that down a bit. So I appreciate the suggestion and the observation there. Uh, we had some questions about where the best place to post criticism of the show, and that can be anywhere you like. It can be on our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. It can be through our Twitter account. It can be through our voicemail, and it could be on our Facebook page. We do not shy from having the conversation wherever it is that you feel most comfortable so if wherever that if that can be if you feel like writing us up a paper letter we don't actually have a, an actual address to send it to but you can scan that paper letter in and email it to us and we will be happy to read it bring the criticism because we want it and that's only going to make our our craft better and our ability to disseminate these ideas into the world from these important people even stronger we really appreciate it and you can call in and leave a criticism about us on our voicemail and that's plus one 919-701-9872. One of the things that you can do that's most important, though, if you're a listener of The Extra Environmentalist, is get out there on iTunes and leave us a review. You know, rate us, leave us a review, uh, spread episodes around, tell your friends about it. So many different ways that you can interact with the show and uh, just get out there and do it. So many people on our Facebook page. It's really awesome. What did our latest stats say? That we had like 400 people who interact with it on a monthly basis. So that's we, get a, we get a lot of impressions. I'm not really sure what those mean, but we do have about 400 people that, that come to our site on a regular basis and uh, yeah, interact with us. Yeah. So feel free to leave a comment or you know comment on something else somebody else on the site says. It's, retweets are wonderful things as well. We're gonna close out this episode. So get out there and make some sauerkraut. I know I have. Next time on The Extra Environmentalist.
I did that, if I felt it was the right thing to do, I could go to jail, uh, lose my job, whatever, could have all sorts of implications, repercussions, and, and never know whether that had made a difference or not. You can't rely on that, otherwise I think you'd, never, you'd probably never start. Or, or it's the wrong motivation. I'm a great believer in going in with the right motivation is critical too. It's got to be really selfless. And it's very hard if you get too attached to outcomes. That's often what people who go into wars do. You know, Tony Blair, I don't know about George Bush, Tony Blair maybe genuinely wanted peace, but he started a war to get it, and all we've got is more war. So he was attached to an outcome and thought that outcome justifies the means. So that's a very tricky road. So I don't think you can do that. I think you've just got to act from your own integrity, your own inspiration. You're listening to XPR Extra Environmentalist Public Radio, and this is Talk of the Haitian. Hello, you are listening to Talk of the Haitian. I am your host, Mama Vandersmith, based in our Washington, D.C. bureau. Today, we talk to many, many voodoo spirits, and we find out why the world is collapsing all over the world. Today, we're talking to Ola. Ola, are you on the line? Hello, I am a voodoo loa. Oh, yeah, Loa, tell us, uh, tell us what is your favorite food, Loa? I like to eat the blood of toads. Yes, that's a common love of uh, voodoo spirits. Uh, Loa, can you tell us about uh, why the people are so upset around the world? The energy of the spider is growing with the web around us. It wraps us in its unbelievable tentacles. As the spider builds its web in the morning, you see this economic trouble starting to grow and grow until the fly of our politicians are caught up in it and then the spider goes and eats like the trickster god. Oh yes, Mama Vandersmith knows all about the trickster god as well as the spider which I squashed this morning. Um, tell me sir. Or ma'am, or voodoo spirit man you are. I am great voodoo spirit. Do not insult my gender. Oh, yes. uh, I'm so sorry, sir. Ma'am, what do you be? I want to know, can you tell me what you think about sauerkraut? You cursed my gender. I bring pain to seven generations of your children. However, sauerkraut is a very useful food adaptation for local food economies. Mm, very good. I like to eat it with my uh, hot dog or saucy, saucy, sausage. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Mr. Spirit, uh, any local weather report for today? It looks to be mostly sunny today as the hot sun burns down on your wretched human flesh. No, no, that sounds very beautiful. What is it like to be a spirit? Uh, tell me what you uh, do on a very basic, very basic day. Usually I go into the minds of the people around me and I influence them to do crazy things. I say, look at this person walking on the street. What if they buy a small dog and put in bag? That would be hilarious. Then they buy that dog rain boots and sweater. I laugh all day. So you say, Voodoo Spirit, you are responsible for the trend of small dog in bag? I'm just saying that Paris Hilton has channeled me many times. 
that is no surprise, I would say to me. So Mama Vandersmita has no more time for today, but uh, maybe you try to join us next week on Talk of the Haitians.